Uh, welcome. Welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. Uh, for me, it's Monday morning. I don't know what time it is for you, but Monday mornings are always a bit mellow and tame for me after uh, Sunday. Kind of a... Uh, tempering down of the day before I suppose and each Monday morning I put out Sunday's Thought as a podcast a little bit different geared towards more of a one-on-one kind of conversation I suppose than speaking to a large group of people but each um, week for several weeks now we've been going through definitions words that Christians use on a regular basis that Uh, It's good for us to better understand and define well, because over time, language is a living thing, and definitions and meanings tend to drift a bit, but in biblical terms, uh, the way words are defined have kind of been set in place, uh, because they were written when they were written, and the definition used at the time hasn't changed since then, so it's good for us to understand how uh, those words we read in the Bible are defined. And today we're working on defining the word holy. Um, Now this is a special word because a word can convey more than we may be able to comprehend or sometimes we may have a thought in our mind or be able to understand something that's difficult to put into words. And holy kind of conveys both of those things at the same time. And it's another word kind of like blessing that I like to think of as kind of our word, I suppose. You could put it in quotes for uh, church people, Christians, and people interested in these kinds of things. And it doesn't see much use outside of church circles. It's not like uh, people throw the word holy around a whole lot. But for Christians, holy is a big word. Um, We sing it in songs. We use it as an adjective to describe God. Sometimes we use it as an adjective to describe things. Um, To put it simply and generally, if we look at the dictionary definition of holy, which I like to do, take that dictionary definition and kind of compare it to how the Bible uses the word. And often there's there's a lot of similarities between the two, but sometimes there's some nuances that differ a bit. Um, But to put it simply and generally, holy means separate, and set aside for a purpose, specifically a religious purpose. It can also mean morally and spiritually excellent. And the word holy can be applied to God, it can be applied to people, and sometimes even some material things, although we're not going to talk a whole lot about the material side of it today, more so um, God and people, and how the word holy relates to God and to us as people. In the Bible, the term holy is often used when God would separate something from the world that he chooses to devote to himself. So there are things that can be holy and people can be set apart as holy. And of course, the Bible declares many times that God himself is holy. So we're going to look at the word holy from a few different angles. Like you kind of think of it like if you were looking at a house and you wanted to get a good picture of it, you'd take a walk around the house and you'd look at it from every side and all the different angles. And that's what we're going to, I suppose, attempt to do with the word holy. Take a walk around it and look at it from some different angles. And 
we're going to start with holy or the word holy as it relates to God. And obviously this one is pretty important. It's a big one. It matters. And we're going to read a couple of uh, scriptures or have a couple of scripture readings to start us down that track today. And one of those is from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, chapter six, verses one through three. And also in the New Testament, at the very end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter four, verse eight. In Isaiah chapter six, verses one through three, this is what we read. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then moving over to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we read, The four living creatures had six wings each, and they were covered with eyes all around. All day and night, without ceasing, they were saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Uh, if you're curious, I am reading from the modern English version uh, of the Bible. If you would uh, you know, be curious to know that or follow along with the same translation, just so you know. Uh, but from what we've read, Isaiah and John both see a vision of the throne in throne room of heaven and in both of those readings we see the beings that surround God continually and eternally proclaim the holiness of God and you can read the context of that and you can see that in, in several different places in the Bible but everything around God and everything before God always gives way to his glory and his holiness and the reactions of different living beings to that holiness are very interesting. Isaiah's reaction uh, when he sees this vision of God in his throne room and God's holiness is in Isaiah chapter six, verse five. And he's, is, this is what he says. And he said, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts in we see John's reaction to the holiness of God when he sees Jesus in heaven in Revelation chapter 1 verse 13, or sorry, Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. And the holiness of God compels reverence. There's really no other action but to fall down before him. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And understand that means that regardless of who anyone is, whether they love God, whether they hate God, whether they've spent their life trying to follow him or not, uh, everyone's reaction to the presence of God will be to fall down and acknowledge him as God. And as I meditated on these passages in my heart, in mind, I began to realize that defining the holiness of God in the way that John and Isaiah would understand it, or the beasts around the throne would understand it, is not really something that I believe is even possible. Um, it's, it's not something we think a lot about, but it's important that we do consider the holiness of God and, and what that means. It's like someone who has never seen the ocean 
but they've read about it, trying to describe the ocean to someone who's never seen it. You say, well, it's a big body of water. It's, it's salty. From what I read, it seems pretty impressive. And it's like, well, okay, I guess that sounds pretty cool. But then when someone actually sees the ocean, they say, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see what you're talking about. But that would be much easier to explain and much less impressive than experiencing the holiness of God like we've read about um, John and Isaiah have done. So it's a difficult thing to define. It's difficult to convey what it is. It's difficult to do it any real justice with words, but we're going to have a go at defining it anyway because that's why we're here. And there are some very good reasons to do our best to better understand holiness as it relates to God. It helps us better understand the gospel and what hasn't been accomplished by Jesus on the cross and what a truly monumental message the gospel is. So holy means separate. It means set aside for a purpose. It means morally and spiritually excellent. And God in his holiness is the complete fulfillment of all of those things. He is set apart and separate. He's completely unique from all of creation in that he is the only one who has the ability to create. And we've seen John and Isaiah's reaction to the holiness of God. And there's also the reaction of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. In chapter 20, in verses 18 through 20, it says, All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, You speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And you see there the experience of Israel when confronted with the holiness of God is very similar to John and Isaiah. They were so overwhelmed and afraid that they perceived that God even, if God even spoke to them, if they were to audibly hear his voice, they would die. And they asked Moses to intervene with God for them because they're so afraid. And it was from that point forward that God uses prophets to speak to his people. And in these different scenarios, people react to the holiness of God in very similar ways. And really, what you would describe as absolute fear. And there's very good reason for that fear. Um, We don't really give this a lot of thought today, but if you are profane or unholy, God's presence is tremendously dangerous for you. Um, There are a couple of Old Testament examples we can look at to better understand that. Once a year, the high priest in Israel would enter into the Holy of Holies. It was the most inner part of the Old Testament temple. And it was part of the, it was the part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was kept And this is where God's presence appeared. And it was separate from everything else. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest, and only on the Day of Atonement, no one else could do this, and it was only one day a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of sacrificed animals and offer incense before God. And there was a procedure 
of ceremonial purification that the high priest had to follow before entering into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. But in that chapter, the very first thing God says is that the high priest can't enter into his presence without following the instructions given for purification. Because if he does not do that, he will die. So the holiness of God is dangerous if you are unprepared. And now let's clear this up a little bit since we're here. I've heard this said many times. There's an old wives tale that says that they tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest so that if he died while he was in the Holy of Holies, they could drag him back out. And I've heard that story many times. If you've heard that story, it's, it's very unlikely that that's true because there's really nothing to support it. And there's no evidence of that before. Oh gosh, it was, it was a long time after the old Testament temple uh, was gone, but in First Chronicles 13, we see another instance of how God's holiness is dangerous. And Israel is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple in First Chronicles chapter 13. And that's kind of a, it's, it's an interesting story behind that. Some of it's kind of comical when you dig into that and start looking at the way some of those words are defined. But, but as the Ark was being pulled or uh, being transported back to the temple, it was on a cart or back to Jerusalem, it was on a cart. And one of the oxen pulling the cart stumbles and it looked like the ark was going to fall. And a man named Utsa reached his hand out to steady the ark. And when he touched it, he dropped dead. And that seems like a pretty severe thing to happen to someone who is doing what would seem to be a good deed. But God had laid out very clearly as to how the ark was to be handled it was uh, only to be moved in a certain way by certain people. And what Uzzah did violated that. And some view that his death as punishment for touching the ark, which kind of, but there's more to it than that. It really, it's an example of what happens when a profane person comes into contact with the holiness of God and they are not prepared to do so. They're not prepared for that. If there was a live power line down in the street, someone may very well think it'd be a good idea to get that power line out of the street. Good intentions, of course, but if they actually grab it to move it, the consequences will be severe. You know, the electricity is a great thing, but if you go out there and grab a live power line because you think it's a good idea to get it out of the street, the consequences are going to be severe. God's holiness is dangerous, and the closer you get to it, the more dangerous it becomes. But this is so important to understand about calling God's holiness dangerous. God's holiness is not dangerous because he's bad. It's dangerous because he is so good. And we read about these different times where people have come into the presence of God and his holiness, and they're very afraid. They feel like they're going to die. They feel like if they audibly hear God speak to them, they will die. And I don't think we should interpret that as God trying to be scary, but we should interpret it as this is who God is. He is absolutely pure and absolutely holy. And any living being that experiences the holiness of God will react with reverence and fear. And that's holiness in relation to God. And 
we've already started to wander into this, but let's take a step around around our house and look at it from another angle and around this word holy and better ex, uh, expand our understanding of the word. So let's talk about holy as it relates to people. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel were God's representatives. If you look at where he placed the nation of Israel in ancient times, that little strip of land along the uh, Mediterranean Sea, and you look at the geographic location of where God placed Israel, you'll see that it's very strategic in that any travel, any trade between all of Europe and all of Africa, pretty much the, the known world at the time, would have had to travel through the nation of Israel. So the rest of the world would learn about who God is and what he is like from Israel. God embodies moral and spiritual excellence. And God gave the nation of Israel a lot of regulation and instruction on how to represent that. There was the moral law of the Old Testament and keeping that was certainly part of obeying God and representing him well. But something we don't think near as much about was that there's also a lot of instruction for ritual purification. And that's what the high priest went through before he was able to enter into the Holy Holies. There was a specific um, ritual purification that he had to go through to do that. And moral and spiritual excellence is mostly about separation from anything profane. And ritual purification on the other hand, has more to do with cleansing and purification from anything having to do with sickness and death. So there's kind of a difference between the two. And people living under Old Testament law were not supposed to touch anything dead or diseased. And after someone got over a disease, they had to go see the priest in the temple and undergo ritual purification. And you might remember in the New Testament, Jesus, there's a story where Jesus heals 10 lepers. And then he told them to go show themselves to the priests so they could undergo the ritual purification. And what that is, the ceremonial cleansing, ritual purification, is separation and cleansing from death and sickness. If someone were sick or came into contact with something dead, they were considered unclean or ritually impure. And interesting thing about being ritually impure is that it's not simple. You know, someone can help it if they get sick. It's not like they did something wrong. But nonetheless, it's not acceptable in God's presence either. And that's why God gave instruction on how to become ritually pure. And that had to happen before someone could go into the temple. If we put that in more contemporary terms, it would be like if you were sick, you couldn't go to church, or if you had touched something dead, you weren't allowed to go to church. Now, if someone touched something impure, that impurity was transferred to them, kind of like catching a cold from someone else. And we read about Isaiah and how he's afraid when he entered into the presence of God. And everyone who does that comes into God's presence that we've heard about, like the nation of Israel and John and Isaiah, they all realize this is dangerous for me. I really don't belong here. And listen to what Isaiah says in chapter six, verses five and six. He says, what was me 
for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar in his hand, and he laid it on my mouth and said, This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. So a coal is taken from the altar in the throne room of heaven, a very holy and very pure object. And it touches Isaiah, and Isaiah is purified. Isaiah is impure, but the thing that touches him does not take on his impurity, which is the way things normally happen. And that's, that's special, because normally impurity is transferred, not purity. What makes this different is that Isaiah didn't become pure through ritual, cleansing, or moral practice, but purity came from God to him, and the thing that touched him did not become impure. God can't become impure. He can't become unholy. He can't become profane. This is different from the moral law and ceremonial cleansing that we normally read about in the Old Testament. This purity comes to Isaiah. It touches him and it changes him. Then in the New Testament, what do we see Jesus doing all the time? What did the Pharisees complain about? He associates with sinners. He heals lepers. He heals sick people. He even raises people from the dead. And Jesus comes into constant contact with people who are profane and unclean. And he touches them. People who weren't supposed to be touched. Because normally the uncleanness would be transferred to the one who touches them. But Jesus is different. Impurity doesn't transfer to him. He touches the sick, but he doesn't become unclean. He associates with immoral, sinful people, but does not become immoral or sinful himself. Jesus is immune to what is impure and profane. Impurity and uncleanness does not transfer to him. When Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, another story in the New Testament, he raises his widow's son from the dead. And he deliberately walks over and touches the coffin when he does that. And he didn't have to do that. Um, if you've heard the story of Lazarus, he calls Lazarus out of the grave. But in the case of the, this widow's son, he, he intentionally touches him. But he didn't undergo any purification rituals because he didn't have to, because impurity doesn't transfer to Jesus. Jesus transfers purity and healing to others like the woman with the issue of blood who touched his garment. Touching Jesus healed her. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus the Son is the physical embodiment of the holiness and presence of God. And followers of Jesus are now God's living temple, made holy through the blood of Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sends his followers out into the world with the gospel message so that people might be made pure through the gospel of Jesus. Now let's take one more step around this word. We've talked about holy as it relates to God, holy as it uh, relates to people. And now let's look at this holy as it relates to everyday life, because this is 
very relevant to each of us. It's important for us to understand, you know, holiness of God is obviously important to understand holiness as it relates to people, but holiness as it relates to everyday life. Um, because I don't know if you're like me, this isn't something you notice, you feel, you think about all the time, but it's something that we need to understand and know about. And in that, only God fully embodies moral and spiritual excellence. People don't do that. We're not capable of that. It's just a reality. And in the Bible, followers of Jesus are called saints, which literally means holy ones, because the blood of Jesus has allowed us to be set apart. It's allowed everyone that opportunity. So if you are a saved believer, if you know Jesus is your Savior, uh, you are a saint according to the Bible. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? To think you're a saint. Um, I suppose some of us just need to start acting like we're saints, but that's a broad concept, isn't it? Live like a saint and live like uh, a holy person. Um, and the nuance of that could be interpreted or misinterpreted in many ways. And that's something we could talk about for days and days. But it's said a few times in the book of Leviticus, and Peter repeats the same thing in 1 Peter 1.16, where he writes, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Our definition of holy is separate, set aside for a purpose, morally and spiritually excellent. And if we are going to live a holy life, that tells us what to strive for, to set our life apart, to make it separate, set it aside for the purpose of serving God. Live a life that's set apart for God. Live that purpose. Live out what has happened to you through the gospel. And I say we're not perfect, and that's true, but we don't have to be because Jesus is perfect. We don't have to stress for, you know, strive for moral perfection to be right with God because Jesus has done that for us. He fulfilled every moral and ceremonial requirement of the Old Testament, and impurity does not transfer to Jesus, but purity and holiness come from him and transfer to us when we put our faith in him, recognizing the price he paid with his blood on the cross was for our impurity. And because of that, because of the great things that Jesus has done and understanding, you know, the, the holiness of God and how dangerous that is if something profane comes into his presence, but because of what Jesus has done, coming into the presence of God does not mean death if you know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the preparation for coming into the presence of God. Not moral behavior, not ritual purification, but trusting Jesus in what he's already done for us. And when you think about that, because you can ask just about anybody and they're probably going to say, you know, how do you think you're accepted by God? However you word the question, you know, how do you get to heaven? Whatever it might be, how do you know God? And most people are likely going to answer by being good enough. 
And you say, well, how good's good enough? And they're probably going to say, well, I never murdered anybody. I don't know if that's um, a super high standard to have, but the fact is, is that is just, it's the wrong way of thinking. That's not how we relate to God. That's not how God has made a way for us to himself. It's all through Jesus, where Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. In John 14, 6, he is the way because of what he has done for us on the cross. His purity transfers to us. And coming into the presence of God with Jesus as your Savior isn't dangerous. It doesn't mean death if you've been purified by his blood. And so the question today to meditate on and consider is, do I know Jesus? Have I trusted him as my savior? And if you don't, you can, it's available to you. You know, God is, is reaching out to you through this podcast and saying, trust me, trust my son, Jesus, realize you need a savior, you know, turn away from profane things, turn away from your own efforts at righteousness and turn to Jesus. Have you been purified by his blood? And I hope you have. I hope that that makes sense. And I hope you know Jesus. I really do. And I hope that, yeah, we get to meet someday in heaven. And if you're ever in the local area here on the Gold Coast, be sure you stop in and say hi. But that's all we've got for this week. And Yeah, I look forward to catching up with you again next week. Have a great day.